All right, my name's Andy, and I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth, and that is how you introduce yourself at Middle Class Anonymous. <laughs> Subdi subdivision of 20 schemes that Mez, up to this point, has not known about. A while back, a video went viral on YouTube of a bloke in the, in the US with a bunch of young people on a start line of a race. And he holds up a $100 bill, and he says, the winner of this race gets this money. But he said, before you start this race, I'm going to call out a number of statements. And if those statements apply to you, for everyone that applies, take two steps forward. If they don't apply, stay where you are. And so he says, take two steps forward if both of your parents are still married. Take another two steps forward if you grew up with a father figure in the home. Take two steps forward if you had access to private education. Take two steps forward if you never had to worry about where your next meal was coming from. Take two steps forward if you never had to worry about your mobile phone getting cut off. Take two steps forward if you never had to help your mum and dad with the bills. And he makes it clear that every statement that he makes has nothing to do with a decision you have made, but everything is largely up to conditions and factors out with your control. And yet by the time he has finished reading the statements, there are some people who have a massive advantage. They can basically reach out and take the $100 out of his hand. And yet others are massively disadvantaged. And they are rooted to the start line. Now, as somebody who could take two steps forward every single time that man opened his mouth, it feels proper awkward for me to stand here and talk about struggles. Because relative to many people in this room, my life does not know the meaning of the word. But what that video depicts is that the privileges that I have had are very real. And the disadvantages are very real. The head start is real. And wherever you end up, however many steps you have taken forward, there is a them and there is an us. The very fact that we have council estates and housing schemes is brick and mortar evidence of the fact that that gap, that divide, that separation exists. But the divide is not just in our postcodes, it's beneath our clothes, right? And the difference is not just in our bank accounts, but it's hardwired into our reflexes. And if you don't recognize it as a middle-class person going into a council estate, then you will struggle. However, my struggles as a middle-class pastor planting a church and a housing scheme did not come because I didn't recognize the privileges I had. They came, first of all, because I didn't appreciate the emotions that those privileges provoked. If anything, in the first two sessions, we have witnessed those emotions. I'm going to run through six struggles I've had. Here's the first one. I've been ignorant of the emotions behind the us and the them. How does somebody rooted to the start line in that race think about me who has taken multiple steps forward? Well, there is a rightful sense of injustice. There is an understandable anger towards the privilege. Oh, this is not fair. See, when you're walking into a community, like a council estate, you're walking into a place that has 
assumptions and has drawn conclusions and has created a caricature of who they think that you are. So if you're middle class walking into a council estate, you're probably walking into a community that sees you as the cause of most of that injustice and so as the target for most of their anger. You're walking in a community that has a pathological suspicion of outsiders like you. So you don't come in neutral. I didn't come in identified as a hero, but probably targeted as an enemy. But that's not just true of those on the start line looking to those up ahead. Both sides hold these caricatures of each other that are emotionally fueled, generationally instilled, and are assumptions of what the they are like. Let me give you an example from both sides. When I grew up in a church in Edinburgh, I played guitar at that church, and so Nidri Community Church, when they were struggling for musicians, contacted me, asked if I would play. 18-year-old, had to ask my dad permission to use his car. My dad's response, godly Christian man, you're not parking my Audi outside of that church. Other side, I told one of my friends in Gracemount, a housing scheme, that I used to work for a church of 500 members in the city center. His instant response, where can you park 500 Range Rovers in Edinburgh? <laughs> now, they are both generalizations. They are both caricatures, but both are instinctive and emotive. In one world, you are the hero and they are the villain. In their world, they are the hero, you are the villain. So you must not underestimate the emotions and the struggles when these two worlds collide. You may only be crossing a street, but you're also crossing cultures. You may still be within your own city, but you're probably on foreign soil because that advantage-disadvantage dynamic is very real and very emotive. There are dividing walls of hostility that must be broken down and set aside. Second thing, link to that. You'll struggle if you underestimate how long it takes to earn people's trust. Chatting to another friend of mine in Gracemount, told him I was doing this talk, not a Christian. I said, what is the hardest thing for a bloke like me coming into your community? And without a moment's hesitation, he said, trust See, in grace, my trust is by works. It is not gifted by grace. Trust is earned over a long time, and it can be lost in a second. So if you're impatient, and you aim to start a church plant service in a community quickly, without earning trust, you will struggle. If you're not a person of your word, even in the little things, you will struggle. Now, distrust is a learned thing often a learned defense mechanism because they've been burned by people in authority who have misused that authority by abusing people under their authority. Trust will take time. You will have to think very carefully about how you talk about and implement things like elders. Because authority, even for an elder, will not be thought of positively. Do not underestimate how long this will take. It means you'll need to be patient. You will definitely need to be authentic. It means you need to come in amongst them, not above them. Come in to learn, not to dictate. Come in to contribute to their story, not to inflict your own. Do not underestimate how long that will take. Third thing. You will struggle if you just preach and teach 
and don't also eat and drink. Let me explain that. If you're trying to get middle-classy, Christian-y people in your launch team, they will probably trust you based on whether or not you can faithfully preach and teach the Bible. That's not going to cut it from the people in our council estates and housing schemes that we are desperate to hear the gospel. They will not trust you based on a slick presentation on Ephesians 3. It is going to be earned over a conversation over a bacon roll or banter over a game of football or grieving with them at a graveside or just being there when they need you. Now, I've struggled with this. Three reasons. Number one, I'm an introvert and I prefer to be safe in my study surrounded by books written by dead guys than vulnerable in front of someone who doesn't trust me. Two, because it often feels when you're just doing this hanging out thing, it is not an efficient use of my time. In my culture, I am bred for productivity. Some of these things feel like I'm wasting my time. Third, just hanging out with folk makes me feel guilty because in ministry, I don't even have time to do that with my own family. But it's important because it was said of Jesus that the Son of Man came eating and drinking to the point where people labeled him a glutton and a drunkard, the friend of sinners. Anyone in your launch team ever accused you of being a glutton and a drunkard? Because you are going to have to get close to that before people in your community call you their pastor or teacher. Anyone in your community call you their friend? All right, it's one thing to have read Poverty Safari and think we know about poverty, but would anyone living in poverty call you their friend? Nobody will listen to a word you say from the Bible if you've not deeply listened to them over a butty. You are never going to have the joy of inviting someone to the Lord's table for the first time if you've not had them around your table. Which will mean, and this is hard, preaching and prepping for sermons will most likely take up a minor part of your time. Because the message is you, all of you. And that will be vital for any evangelism or discipleship. Four, you'll struggle if you'll see everything as black and white and you're unable to handle gray. My wife Sarah had been doing youth work in Gracemount for years before we met. And so when we started dating, I started helping her out with some of the youth groups. And having done youth work in christian churches for years, mainly amongst affluent kids, I thought I was God's gift to my wife's ministry. And so I started going along to the youth groups. First day, a kid turned up who told me as soon as they came in that they hadn't been to school that day. They skived. And I went straight to Sarah. We need a rule that if you're coming to the after-school club, you need to go to school. Another kid comes in, behavior is off the wall. Instantly, I wanted to get to discipline. Another two kids started fighting. Sarah sent one of them home, let the other one stay. I said, Sarah, listen, we need to talk about consistency and discipline. And she was kind to me. She waited till we got home, but then she very faithfully, gently, but firmly schooled me. The young person who came in having not been at school is the very people we need to be reaching. The young person whose behavior was bouncing off the walls didn't need discipline. They needed a chocolate spread sandwich. What do you like when you're hungry? And when your mom has no food in the cupboards because she's high all the time, how are you going to feel? And the two kids where one had been sent home and one hadn't, the one who was told they could stay, their dad died of an overdose the day before and he needs to be at the club today. 
I'd only seen the behavior. I wasn't seeing what lay behind the behavior. And what is true in youth groups with little kids is true of any discipleship relationship, pastoral situation, or church discipline scenario on a housing scheme. Do not just see the black and white. Slow down, understand, listen, appreciate the gray. Remember where people are starting from. It is not where your privilege got you. And know that repentance for any of us is never easy and straightforward. It is costly and it is complex. Your ministry is going to feel more like the book of 1 Corinthians than the book of Romans. Deal with it. Number five, you're going to struggle if you are naive to the power of a dominant culture. When I worked in a very middle-class, affluent, city-centered gathered church, I felt like a fish in water. Now, by that, I don't just mean that I felt comfortable. It I mean that I did not even appreciate that the culture existed. I did not know anything else. It was just my natural habitat. When I left that church and went to Nidri to train with 20 schemes, I suddenly felt like a fish out of water. I felt like I didn't belong. I felt like I didn't fit in. I felt like an outsider. I felt like a child. Now, although I couldn't see my own culture, I could very clearly see this culture. And I knew straight away it was not my home. Now that made me realize a couple of things. One, it is way easier to do church when you just stay amongst your own people. All right, homogenous units make church easy. Let's just achieve unity through uniformity. That is easy. But it also showed me how hard it must be for someone from a council estate to walk into, let alone stay in a church where the dominant culture is middle class. And by the way, if you do not think that your church has a dominant culture, that means your church's dominant culture is your culture. And it may be invisible to you, but it is not insignificant and it is probably intimidating to others. So if you're a planter or a church from the outside wanting to plant in a council estate, don't just drop a group of members in and start a service. Take time to listen to, understand, exegete the culture, and where possible, let let those who are indigenous to the culture take the lead. Your community's culture needs to become the dominant culture in your church. And if you are the outsider, you're the one that needs to feel like you are not at home, and they're the ones that need to feel like they are at home. All right, according to the gospel, we must not expect the weak to adapt to the strong. The strong become weak for the sake of the weak. Six, you will struggle if you overlead because you are aiming at peak efficiency. This is me. See, I know for a fact, if I want to get something done, I am best to do it on my own. No interruptions, no questions, no distractions, no one, just me and the task. But if that is my approach to ministry, my ministry will be limited to me and it will die with me. In any context, leaders need to do two things. A leader needs to take people along with them to observe their leadership, and a leader needs to underlead. Let things go undone so that other people can step in, step up, and take responsibility. Now, that is a struggle for a leader because two things happen as a result of that. Your productivity goes down and standards go down. That's why we need to remind ourselves, 
Our mission here is not peak efficiency. It is to make much of Jesus as a disciple-making disciple who plants church planting churches. Overleading may mean an efficient, faithful church in this generation, but it will mean a dead church in the next generation. Whereas underleading may produce a messy, unproductive church in this generation, but may may lead to multiple faithful churches in the next generation. But the truth is, this underleading is both harder and more important when you are crossing cultures. It's harder. Give me any Oak Hill student graduate to train, and I can do it with my eyes shut. Because we're both fish that are used to swimming in the same pond. But put next to me someone who's indigenous to a council estate or housing scheme, and both of us will struggle because both of us will struggle living in each other's ponds. It's harder. But it's more important. Because our desire should ultimately to be for ourselves as outsiders to become less and the cultural indigenous insiders to become more. The role of a cross-cultural missionary, as someone has said, is to be midwives of the indigenous. Do your job, pass it over, be forgotten. Now, there's six things. There's more. They are struggles. Staying where you are is easier. Unity through uniformity is easier. Homogenous units is easier. Right? Paul, just go to the Jews. You're a Jew. Tell you what, in Ephesians, right, in Ephesus, you Gentile Christians have your church there. Jews have your church there. It's going to be easier. Right? Timothy, there's your foreskin back, right? It's just easier. (laughs) However, When these two worlds collide, as well as producing struggles, it creates lessons that I learn about the the sinful prejudices that resided in my heart that beforehand I didn't know about. And it teaches me more about the width, the length, the breadth, and the depth of the love of God in Christ Jesus. The motivating drive for gospel ministry is not what is easiest and comfy for me. It is so that by whatever means, some may be saved. And so in all the emotions of today, in all the distrust, in all the grace, we need to hear this. Here, there's not Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and patience, bearing with one another, and if has complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Amen.